hauling Just look at the load I'm hauling Hard work, I hit it harder Ain't nothing new for a backwoods farmer Sun up to sundown Backing up traffic all the way to town Camo hat and a farmer's tan Welcome to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group, your innovative consumer resource and marketing partner of choice for the evolving agricultural community. Now, here's your host, Brent Adams. Welcome to another episode of Fast Line Fast Track. It's great to have you with us. On this episode, spring planting season is here for many across the country, and agronomist Jason Webster talks about ways to avoid spring planting pitfalls. We also hear from Kip Eiderberg with the Association of Equipment Manufacturers about how its members are faring during the pandemic. Then we talked to Michigan organic farmer Nathan Engelhart about what life looks like for him in the midst of COVID-19. And we talk about the $19 billion President Trump earmarked last week for agriculture. And we hear about how a company called Aquablast is helping farms stay sanitized. Finally, we would present the second part of our conversation with honky-tonk Creole and Western swing artist Dennis Stromat. You won't want to miss a moment of this jam-packed episode. Let's go! Well, first up this week on Fast Line Fast Track, we've talked so much over the past month about COVID-19 and everything that goes along with that. But uh, we can't turn a blind eye to the fact that in many parts of the country, a uh, planting season is upon us now. And uh, with that comes uh, a number of challenges. So one of the things that I wanted to do was to bring in Jason Webster, who's a commercial agronomist with Precision Planting. Uh, they're based out of Tremont, Illinois. He runs the PTI Farm in Pontiac, Illinois, and is a guy who uh, I regard as one of the uh, brightest minds in agronomy in America and a guy that uh, I, I certainly trust. I've heard a lot of uh, what, what he does there, and I, I see the work he does with farmers and uh, uh, definitely a guy who could put his his uh, finger on some pitfalls here. And Jason, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Man, it's good to, ha- good to have you back on the show. We enjoyed our, our visit there to the PTI farm last summer. And one of the things that really struck me was the fact that uh, you really have kind of carte blanche to be out there and, and, and experiment and, and, and try and see different things. And uh, it all starts uh, with, with planting season. It all starts with tillage. It does. You know, at the PTI farm, we are, like you said, you know, we've got a, a plethora of things that we test on the farm and, and some of them are tillage trials. And boy, at this time of the year, especially when it's cool and somewhat wet, tillage can be one of the things that we, we really tell guys that we got to think about what we're doing. Because if we get that tractor and that piece of tillage out there on a piece of ground that's too wet, we're just causing compaction, compaction issues from day one. We are just setting ourselves back. And it's going to take a little bit of a time and healing to get that compaction fixed it may take some some deeper tillage and if some of these guys are in a reduced tillage program it may never get fixed so we just have to be patient i know it's hard I, i'm a farmer too i want to get in there and get it done but one of the biggest things we have to wait for is soils to be fit if we're going to do tillage it's just going to set us back from day number one mm-hmm. meanwhile the other thing to be focusing on is planter maintenance i think that's the thing that uh, winds up tripping a lot of folks up yeah, it does. And, you know, fortunately, we've got a great precision planting premier dealer network. These guys are really good at what they do. And I do think there's farmers that really don't know how to go through the whole maintenance um, routine on a planter. I don't think they know all the, the checklists. And so I would encourage them if, if growers don't know exactly what they need to be looking for on their planters to, to have a, 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 I'll call it a well-oiled machine, if you will, because, you know, planting is the most important pass that we make. It sets that foundation for yield. And so, again, contact the precision planning dealer if you need some, some um, tips on what to, what to go through on the planner. But, 
you know, we have to make sure that, you know, we, our openers are doing a good job of making that, that true V in the trench. Um, we got to make sure we're getting good seed to soil contact. We got to make sure that our parallel arms, um, you know, don't have a bunch of wobble in them from bushings being worn out. So we've got to do a really good job on the planter. Some of the things I, I think guys don't really do very often, I think this is what we're trying to get the message out, and a lot of guys are doing this more. But one of the things we got to do is calibrate our row units to depth. Now, we do all kinds of depth studies at the PCI farm, but in general, I plant most of my corn at two inches in depth. But it's crazy to look at these planters that are out here in the field that do not get calibrated for depth. And so you've got some that could be off a half inch, either deeper or shallower in some cases. And that's due to wear and tear on the planter. And so every year we've got to be calibrating these planters. And it's one of the things that I do think is overlooked. So guys just need to be aware of it. Guys will notice it if they've got problems. If as that corn's starting to peak up through after planting, you've got some rows that are coming up or take a little bit longer, that's a good indication that you've got to get that that planter calibrated for depth. So one thing to think about. Well, and one of the ways that you guys are doing that, uh, I understand, is through flag testing. Yeah, flag testing is crucial because we think at precision planting that we need to get measurements first before we can make any type of decisions. We've got to know if we've got a problem in the field. And so we do flag testing, and this can be done um, um, either in the middle of the, the planting season, whenever we get a rain out, um, or at the end of a season. But basically what we do, actually, you know, we plant our fields and we wait for that corn to come up, usually 100 to 110 heat units, and that corn's just peeking through the soil surface. And what we want to do is monitor how even our emergence is, because we know, we've done the research on this, if we get late emergers, those are going to be way too much competition. You know, with the, those more mature plants are going to be too much competition, starving water and nutrients, and it's going to cause yield loss. So what we need to do is flag test and find out how even of emergence we have. And if we do have a problem with it, we, get, we have to figure out, okay, what caused that late emerger? And then we can go back to the planter and say, was it worn openers? Was it incorrect downforce? Was it incorrect depth? Were we planting too deep? Were we planting too shallow? And so those are the things we have to monitor. But that is proof in the pudding because we're, we're going to flag them. And generally what I tell folks to do is when you get out there and you see those first plants emerging out of the ground, you flag them with one color of a flag. Come back 10 to 12 hours later and look for more plants that finally came up and flag them with a different color and just keep going all the way through every 10 to 12 hours with a different color flag until every single plant is flagged. And then that'll show you how, you know, what kind of issues we have with the planter. And then since you've got them flagged, we can even take it to harvest and you can monitor the ear size. And if we have a late emerger, you know, what is that costing us yield-wise when that happens in the field? But that's a form of measurement that guys can see firsthand. It's, it's very visual, and guys can actually see how their planter's performing and if they need to correct a few few things. And it might even be a planter that's in, it's in, you know, it's maintained, it's in really good shape, but it's in the wrong settings for the conditions that we're in. So that's going to teach guys, if this happens again, I know how to set the planner now. What kind of feedback have you gotten from, from guys that uh, you've kind of coached on that uh, who have gone out and done it and, and, and actually seen that uh, for themselves? Well, it's hard to get it in the middle of the growing season. We, we have to get rained out. And that's usually the best time. You know, as guys are sitting and they're, 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 they're being a little bit antsy, wanting to get back in the field. But if they get rained out and they got corn just poking up through, they can understand what issues they have. And then as they plant more acres this spring, they can correct them. But sometimes at that, you know, in the whole, 
you know, the battle of, of planning, some of the flag testing doesn't get done until the very end, but there's nothing we can do about it. It's almost post-mortem at that point. Yes, it'll help us for future planning seasons, but uh, we really can't take, take, take care of the problem now. But I think it's, it's, it's eye-opening for guys that'll do this, and I don't think a lot of people have really done it. So they're starting to catch on to it and really starting to understand, ah, I know what was wrong with the planner. I know why that was delayed a merger, and we're getting smarter. So we talk about uh, opening the ground, getting that seat in there, but another big factor here that seems to trip guys up is uh, the closing process. Yeah, you know, I've been looking at closing systems um, since I started farming in 1988. And, you know, traditional planters have, have had those rubber closing wheels that, that pinch that furrow shut. And, you know, really a closing system's got two things it needs to do for us. It needs to lift and fracture that sidewall that we created from our openers that came in and made that true V. And if we come in with a little bit, maybe a too much soil moisture, that's compaction. And what we need to do with a closing system is blow that compaction layer out of there, blow that sidewall out of there. And then we need to remove any air pockets that might be in there. But gosh, it's just been so hard over the years to really get a true picture of, of how good a job we're doing closing. And then there's really been no adjustment, no sensing to know I'm too aggressive in this spot on this soil type here, or I'm not being aggressive enough in this system, in this condition. But I think from our research, it looks like the closing systems of old have never been able to do both things we wanted to do, lift tractor the sidewall and blow the air pocket out. They can only do one. And so another issue we've got with closing is you can't see it working. It's on the back, very back of the planter. And, you know, we're doing high-speed planning. We're hopefully out there in dry conditions, and we've got dust flying. You can't see them working, and there's been no sensing um, of those closing systems until now. And I'm glad that with some of the precision technology we have, as we're planning through the field, we're monitoring, we're sensing the weight of that closing system, knowing if we're doing a good job of doing those two things very well, and that's lifting and fracturing the sidewall and blowing that air pocket out. So. In the meantime, if guys don't have the sensing technology, they got to get out and dig. And I know it's painful to stop that planter tractor, but we got to get out, get your pocket knife out, start digging and seeing how good of a job we're doing closing that trench. That's the last step to getting a very good stand of corn. When you talk about the precision monitoring, what are some of the things that guys should be thinking about uh, in the cab to make sure that, uh, that, that all of their equipment is up to par where it needs to be and also all your sensors are, are functioning properly and that you're going to get the most out of it when you get out there in the field. Yeah, we've got to have a good monitoring system in the cab, and we really need to know in real time how that planter is performing. And if we can do that, we can make manual or automatic automatic changes so we, so we can prevent yield loss from happening. And we've come a long way. I think about my first year of farming with the planter that I had and, and the sensing abilities that it had. It basically told me if I was planting, that was it. Um, it couldn't give me the singulation. It couldn't give me the, the spacing. It couldn't show me how good my soil is. I mean, today we're measuring organic matter, canine exchange capacity. We've got a button on the monitor that tells me how deep I'm planting. And if I'm planting in the moisture, it's incredible the amount of information we're getting. And that's what we need to have coming into the cab because conditions change every single day. It's based on weather for the most part, and things are changing, and settings on the planter need to change it. If guys aren't doing that, um, you know, they don't have the measurements coming in and don't know to make the changes, they're not going to do it, and that's going to be potentially yield loss. So it's all about measurements and sensing on the fly, and 
there is technology available today. I hope guys will consider having that technology on the planner so they can see in real time what's happening. Well, I'll tell you what, if you haven't had a chance to make it to the PTI farm in Pontiac, Illinois, this is a guy I could sit and listen to talk to about this stuff all day long. Just uh, uh, so knowledgeable. But if you haven't been out there to this farm, uh, uh, they've got some big things going on there in Pontiac, Illinois, including a new facility that's coming out of the ground. Yeah, we're just kind of midway, the midway process of our of our new facility in Pontiac, our, our new Precision Technology Institute. It'll be just under 20,000 square feet. We'll have a facility where we'll have classrooms. We'll have a shop area where we can do technical training, things like that. But it's going to be an, an opportunity for us to do agronomic training year-round. So in the past, um, since we've had the PTI farm, we could do agronomic training, but we were limited to doing it in the summer months during the growing season. And now I'm glad that we've got a facility where we can invite folks in, whether that's farmers or whether that's the industry, and just kind of share with some of the things that we've learned and, and, and really show folks here's what's working and here's not. And it's kind of it's, – it's about challenging the status quo. We talk about that a lot. And I, I just – we do so many things at the PTI farm. Some, some of the things are, are right. Some of them are wrong. But we're just trying to learn to see if we can actually do things better. But the most important thing is sharing the information. You know, what ended up being a total disaster? What ended up actually working? Sometimes it's about increasing yield, but most importantly, it's about making more money. It's profitability in farming. And that's what we're just trying to figure out. Can we do things a little bit better? I think some some growers do things the way they're doing it because they think they're right, but they really don't compare it to anything else. So they, they can't challenge the status quo to see if there might be a better way of doing it. And that's what... Uh, our PTI farm is all about, and, and we do that out in the field, and then we want to share it with as many growers so we can all learn. Well, and that is one of the interesting things that I found about it. At the end of the season, you guys go back and uh, and crunch all the data and then actually publish that uh, for folks to take a look at for themselves. Yeah, it's a long process of crunching the data, trying to figure out, okay, we know what our objective was in every study that we had, but then it's just trying to figure out, okay, what actually happened and, and telling that story in a – practical and easy way for a farmer to understand and showing them the math. Um, I think back when I was a kid in school and they, they told me, they said, Hey, you need to understand this math because you're going to use it someday. They were right, <laughs> <laughs> but we got to make it so it's easy for somebody to understand and really show profitability at the end of the end of the game. So that's one of the things that we work on really hard to do. Well, this has been a tough and uncertain year so far for everybody, but what are things looking like as far as being able to bring people back out to the PTI farm later this year? Yeah, we're still um, looking at the whole COVID-19 thing and, mm -hmm. and trying to evaluate what, where we're going to be. But we're still planning business as usual. We're uh, planning field days. We'll be running the week after the 4th of July, and we'll go all the way to September and uh, having guys come in. We have about 100 people at the farm every single day, so we're looking forward to guys coming out. Mm -hmm. And if people have never been, how, how can they find out more about it, and how, how can they get themselves there? Well, the best way is to go to their, their local precision planning premier dealer and ask them about it and then come along to the farm with them. So most of our days, it's an invite. It's a, it's a VIP invitation along with their precision planning dealer. So that's the best way to do it. They can go to our website at precisionplanning.com, uh, or they can reach out to any of, any of uh, um, us at the PCI farm as well for more information. We'd be glad to talk with the folks. 
We'll go check that out. Make sure you get to your uh, precision planting dealer there because uh, they, they've got some really groundbreaking stuff going on there. And uh, Jason, he, he was on the planter. He, he actually stopped and, uh, and got off to talk to us. And Jason, I really appreciate you taking the time to do that and, and talk to us here as we uh, get into planting season. You got it. We'll do it again soon. I love it. Again, that's Jason Webster, commercial agronomist with Precision Planting. Well, one of the first industries being looked to for economic revival in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic is the manufacturing industry, which has worked hard to carry on despite social distancing requirements and changes in demand. And now my next guest this week on Fast Line Fast Track is Kip Eideberg, the Senior Vice President of Government and Industry Relations for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. They represent more than 1,000 companies and 200 product lines in the agriculture and construction industries worldwide. In the U.S., that amounts to about 2.8 million jobs and about $288 billion into the national economy. Kip, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. Hey, uh, Brent, good to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, like myself, Kip is uh, still working out of his home there in the Washington, D.C. area. And, uh, man, we're all trying to adjust to some really unique times here. Yeah, we, we, we sure are. And, uh, I can tell you, Brent, since uh, since we uh, since we closed down Con Expo, um, that show ended about three weeks ago, and and we all went back to uh, to Washington and into Milwaukee, where we are headquartered. Uh, it, it's been uh, it's been a different world that we came back to. I think that's uh, that's probably an under an understatement. And uh, you know, we've been we've been busy. We've been busy trying to support our member companies, uh, help them navigate uh, this this crisis caused by the COVID nineteen pandemic and the the unprecedented, uh, you know, impact that it's having on manufacturers across the country and, uh, you know, trying to make sure that uh, that they can do what they do best, right, which is to manufacture great equipment all across this country, but also obviously, you know, first and foremost, make sure they can, you know, keep their employees and their families safe and sound um, and, uh, you know, ensure that there are jobs for them to come back to once we get through all of this. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of moving pieces there because you're talking about, A, the safety uh, aspect of this, and we have seen instances of some manufacturers where uh, this has been an issue, not, not only with people getting sick, but people calling off because uh, they're, they're afraid of, of what might happen there. So you have to have uh, manufacturers who are adjusting to that. Then uh, the, the ones that have had to idle plants, you know, you, you wonder what, what the demand is going to look like coming back. So a lot of things in play here. Yeah, for sure. And the, the point, uh, the points that we have made to the, the federal government, uh, and that would include the White House as well as uh, well as the Congress and, and the various federal agencies that are all been mobilized to respond to this, you know, the DHS, you know, the the FDA, uh, the HHS, uh, and even to to local uh, local and state government as well, is you know if if, if they want to do something for our industry, uh, there's three things they they can and should do. And, and now I'm talking about sort of the the economic well-being of the industry, and that is first and foremost, make make sure that equipment manufacturers can stay open and on the job. Uh, and so we have been actively working with all all 50 governors on on making sure that you know our industry is is designated as as essential, that they follow the guidelines uh, put out by by DHS uh, that uh, includes equipment manufacturers, suppliers, and distributors. Um, as, a, as an essential industry. Um, so that's number one. Number two is to make sure that the demand for equipment is still there. Um, if, if, if equipment manufacturers can stay open and there's the demand uh, for, for the equipment, then by and large, they will do pretty well. And so, 
you know, again, we've been working with, with state and local federal officials to make sure that infrastructure projects are designated essential. Um, some may, may say that now it's actually a pretty good time to rebuild roads and bridges because you don't have a lot of people out and about. Um, and, and construction is sort of almost by its nature social distancing. So we've been, we've been making that point. And then thirdly, making sure that our member companies have, have access to cash. Uh, you know, liquidity is, is a big problem, particularly for the smaller and mid-sized equipment manufacturers. And so that's where these relief packages that I'm sure you and your listeners have heard all about, COVID-1, 2, and 3, most recently, the, the CARES Act, that's where that comes in. And, and we feel like if we can get all those three things, or at least part of all these three things, then our industry should be able to weather the storm and, and come out okay. But, but I will tell you at the same time, you know, this is a, a, an existential threat to many of our companies that we have not seen since the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you have tried to do to, to bring some cohesiveness to the industry nationwide is you called on the federal government to adopt a comprehensive national manufacturing strategy. And uh, some of the uh, action items in there include uh, a creation of a national institute of manufacturing, also uh, appointing a chief manufacturing officer and developing a national manufacturing council. Because as you point out, uh, there are more than 58 manufacturing related programs across nearly a dozen federal agencies and kind of like we talked on the program last week in in terms of the rural health care system uh, a lot of times you don't really get exposed or expose some of the, the the fragilities in the system until you get a real strain put on them and uh, uh, this has really called attention to something that i think that you guys by and large have been uh, really sounding the alarm for uh, for quite some time yeah, that's 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 right. And and Brent, I think uh, a crisis uh, such as the one we're going through now, as you pointed out, you know, this this is when you really uh, figure out right and, and and are able to to determine just how well our our government uh, is able to respond and and coordinate uh, you know all the various efforts and resources that they have at their disposal um, to address something like this and. And, uh, you know, we have been looking at this for some time. Obviously, manufacturing is, is what we do. It's, it's really important to us. But it's also vital to national security in the U.S. economy. It's, it's essential, you know, to the future prosperity uh, and long-term competitiveness of our country. Um, I think it's important to point out the multiplier effect for manufacturing. It's also the largest of any sector. Um, every dollar invested in manufacturing generates um, as much as $1.89 in business growth and other supporting sectors. But... Uh, you know, despite the importance and, and the promise of manufacturing, you know, our share of global manufacturing has declined by as much as 36% in the last 15 years. So, you know, the, the trend is going in the in the opposite direction of where it needs to go. So that's why we, we came out and, and called on the federal government to, to develop and execute, as you said, a, a national strategy for manufacturing. And, and really what it is more than anything else is, is the you know, opportunity for the federal government to reduce redundancies, uh, approve, improve efficacy dramatically across the federal government, uh, while utilizing existing funding and personnel to improve um, overall efficiency. And so, as you mentioned, there's a lot of programs out there that do a lot of great things for manufacturers, but we feel like that they are not being focused uh, well enough, and that if we could streamline them, add some structure, you know, create a, a hub or a portal for, for manufacturers, particularly those small and medium-sized ones, that they can go to access information resources, then they will be better served and the federal government's resources will be better spent. So, you know, if anything, this is about making government smarter and more accountable 
rather than creating more government, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So from a federal government standpoint, what kind of feedback are are you getting? What what has been the initial reaction? And uh, uh, do, do you feel like there's some traction here? I, I do. So there, there is um, there is a bill actually, uh, uh, or, or legislation rather, uh, that has been developed by Senator uh, Peters from Michigan uh, that would accomplish uh, most of what we are calling for. And we've been working with the senator to, to refine his his proposal. Um, we are currently talking to a number of, of Republican senators uh, about jumping on and, and co-sponsoring this bill. Um, so that it can be introduced, uh, hopefully, in, in, uh, if not in April, then certainly we hope in May. Uh, we are having some discussions with congressional leadership about seeing if this bill can be folded into um, the next big relief package. And, and if not the next one, COVID-4, then, then hopefully COVID-5. And we're talking to the White House. Uh, we're making the case to them that, you know, one of the key policy priorities for this president has always been, you know, to... to um, to revitalize American manufacturing and making American manufacturing number one in the in the world, and so we feel like this proposal uh, aligns very well with his uh, his outlook on the importance of our industry. And so we've been encouraging them to take a look at this, and so far the feedback has been positive. Uh, and so we are optimistic, but uh, but as you know, and as, as most people who follow Washington know, you know, uh, a lot of great ideas are proposed um, a lot of times, and and they they still go nowhere because of inertia and, and uh, partisanship. So we're just going to keep uh, keep pushing this until we get somewhere. This is a tough one, too, because you've got uh, so many people jumping in line here to, to, to try to make their voice heard and, uh, and put their priorities ahead of everybody else's. So I imagine it's no small feat trying to get your voice heard and move this ball forward. No, that's that's certainly true. And, and you know, our member companies, uh, you know, we have about 1,050 uh, you know, they obviously rely on us as the association to to carry their priorities to the lawmakers, both at the state and federal level, to, to advocate for them, to make sure that when decisions are made in Washington or at the state level, that we have a seat at the table and that we are part of, of the solution. But we're not alone. Obviously, there are lots of trade associations and, and business organizations and everyone, like you said, wants a, wants a piece of the pie. And so what we got to do is we just got to figure out a way to communicate the importance of manufacturing uh, and of our industry. Uh, you know, you mentioned $288 billion contribution to GDP, you know, 2.8 million jobs supported by our industry, good paying jobs. Uh, they pay 35% above the national average. So these are the kinds of stories that we have to tell and continually educate lawmakers um, so that they, you know, they, they, they see the impact, uh, you know, at the communities and the, the towns and, and, and places they represent, right? And so when they make decisions, they keep us in mind. So what are you guys hearing fr- from the members? I mean, some of them have had to uh, idle production lines as a result of this, and others have kind of had to pivot. And uh, I, I know some, such as John Deere, have opened up lines for uh, supporting uh, na- national efforts to, to make items such as face shields and so forth. But uh, uh, what, what, what kind of feedback are you getting from folks in terms of the various uh, operating uh, strategies going forward? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, let's, let's look at, at, at operations first. Uh, you know, I think uh, I think uh, a lot of our member companies have uh, have struggled to to adapt to this uh, to this new normal, uh, right? Uh, obviously, the, their first priority is is to keep their uh, keep their employees you know safe and, and healthy. Um, but obviously, they they also have manufacturing operations to run. So 
you know, how to balance those two, you know, it, it's a challenge. And, and it's been a challenge also because we've had sometimes conflicting guidelines uh, from state and local versus the federal government. And that's, again, where we have stepped in and tried to bring some, some clarity to this. But I, I think by and large, um, equipment manufacturers have responded, uh, you know, in, in a number of ways. Number one is uh, obviously no one, no employee, you know, across the industry is being forced to work if, if they're not comfortable um, or, or if they need to be home to care for, you know, children or, or family members. So, again, that goes to that number one priority of, of, of health and safety first. Um, number two, um, you know, equipment manufacturers have, have, have sought to make sure that they can continue to manufacture, you know, in ways that adhere to these federal guidelines on social distancing. So you see a lot of our members running more shifts uh, or running operations 24-7. So they got more shifts but fewer people per shift. Now, that's not obviously maybe as, as optimal as, as normal um, operations, but what it does allow them to do is, is to, you know, is to continue to manufacture with fewer people on the shop floor. So you can ensure that social distancing. Uh, a lot of them have put in place um, pretty, pretty stringent uh, screening uh, regimens. So employees who enter the facilities are screened, their temperatures are checked. You know, you, you have a conversation with your employees, how are you feeling? Um, you know, to determine that they, that they are, you know, uh, that they're healthy and that they are not going to endanger anyone else by, by going to work. Um, and then over communicating and, and, and communicating constantly. I mean, that is maybe the number one thing we hear from our members is just having regular conversations with their employees, with, with their leadership teams, making sure that they have all the latest information, the resources, so that they can make the best possible decision uh, about the, you know, the well-being of their employees and the, and the continuation of operations. So, so that's where we're seeing. And then to your second question about supporting the COVID-19 health crisis relief efforts, manufacturers have really stepped up in a big way. I, I think first and foremost, a lot of them have donated, you know, existing supplies that they have to, you know, healthcare providers and first responders. A lot of our member companies have had particularly respiratory masks on, you know, in stock. And so they've, they've donated those plus other support uh, materials and, and, uh, and resources. So that's number one. Number two, a lot of them have tried to at least explore the possibility of retooling their operations. So you mentioned John Deere making face shields. We've got member companies who have banded together with academic institutions, with other companies um, to form consortiums. So they, they, they are then you know, coming up with new and novel ways of 3D printing masks or manufacturing masks uh, that they will then uh, hand over to the, the relief efforts. We have companies who are making, you know, they're part of the ventilator manufacturing process. So they are making components that go into the ventilators that Ford and GM are now making. Uh, and then obviously supporting their communities, either through financial assistance, you know, or just outreach, uh, whether it's, you know, food drives or, you know, forming um, daycare centers or, 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 or other sort of uh, ways of, of taking care of employees' children who, who are home because schools are closed. So I think you see, you know, you see that, that, that what equipment manufacturers really sort of runs, runs the gamut of all of these different uh, activities. Well, one of the great things that uh, AEM has done on, on the website, aem.org, is to help manufacturers and, and provide some directions through a, a complete section of uh, COVID-19 resources. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we, uh, if you go to that, um, to, to our website, like you said, aem.org, 
you can find it right there on the homepage. That's updated daily um, with the latest uh, latest information on what state, local, federal governments are doing, analysis, summaries of the various legislative relief packages, and information on Canada because we, we do have a you know not only a number of Canadian uh, companies that are members of the association, but a lot of U.S. companies that have operations in Canada. So we are also working you know in Ottawa and across the provinces. Uh, to, to make sure that uh, that we support our, our members um, up north. Um, and then also, um, you know, webinars, um, slide decks, uh, white papers, all of those resources are available um, on our webpage, am.org. Well, this is a rapidly changing situation here, and these guys are staying on top of it. So make sure you go check out that website again, aem.org. And Kip Eiderberg, we really appreciate you taking the time here to join us today on Fast Line Fast Track. You bet, Brent. Thanks for having me. I I hope hope you stay healthy. I hope you and your family are doing well and uh, look forward to talking to you again. The same to you, my friend. That was Kip Eiderberg, the Senior Vice President of Government and Industry Relations for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. And next up on the show, last Friday, the USDA held a rare late-night news conference to announce a $19 billion aid package for the agriculture industry, which, like everyone else, has been deeply affected by COVID-19. Many of the details are still being worked out on the fly, but U.S. Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue shared some of the details of the package and the rationale behind it on a call with reporters. American agriculture, like Many economy sectors in the United States and the world have been hit hard by the coronavirus, but I, I do appreciate President Trump continuing to stand with our farmers and agreeing to provide much-needed assistance. Purdue said the COVID-19 crisis has brought to light just how much of an impact agriculture has on the American economy and way of life. You know, I think more than ever now, our country knows where our food comes from. They're depending on our farmers and ranchers to grow and produce that food that we need to live. And I think in times of national emergency such as this, uh, that's become even more apparent. The secretary then talked about how the entire food chain had to pivot when stay-at-home orders were put into place. Many restaurants were closed to dine-in guests and school food service programs were scaled back or ceased. You've heard me say that the food supply chain has been resilient while having to adapt very quickly when food that used to go to restaurants now needs to go to retail outlets. I think when you really think about the fact that about half of our calories are consumed outside the home. That's been a dramatic shift in our consumption patterns and the misalignment of production and supply has created some real challenges here. As a result, the Trump administration felt it was necessary to provide farmers with aid on par with what they received as part of the market facilitation payment program, which provided assistance in response to trade disruption that caused hardships for many farmers and ranchers. As a result, farmers have seen prices in their market supply chain affected by the virus like they never could have expected. But today, this afternoon at the White House, President Trump and I announced a $19 billion program to support the farmers who've been affected by these disruptions and maintain the integrity of our food supply chain. The program is essentially made up of two parts. First, there will be $16 billion in direct payments to our farmers and ranchers who've experienced unprecedented losses during this pandemic. For this portion of the program, uh, our economists and USDA evaluated commodity-specific losses occurring during the mid-January to mid-April timeframe for immediate assistance. This program is open to farmers and ranchers regardless of size or market outlet if they suffered an eligible loss. We've also looked ahead to help provide additional assistance with costs 
and disruption to markets in the months ahead, not really knowing what the demand destruction would be. We know that the disruption to markets and demand is significant, and these payments will only cover a portion of the impacts on farmers and ranchers. In the second part of the program, USDA is committed to purchase $3 billion in fresh produce, specialty crops, fruits, berries, vegetables, dairy, as well as meat protein to be distributed to Americans in need. This distribution will take in conjunction with the private sector uh, and going to food banks and other uh, nonprofit faith-based and community uh, operations there locally. We'll partner, as I indicated, with regional and local distributors whose workforce has been significantly impacted by the closure of many of their customers in restaurants, hotels, and other institutional settings. Purdue offered few details about the aid payments, only that they would take some time as the government develops software and processes for distribution. He said more details would be released in the coming weeks. I will tell you we're going to do it as quickly as possible. I'm pushing our people just like we have on our disaster and MFP payments. Frankly, by the time the rule gets published and software gets developed and everything, I'm hoping we can uh, get checked by the end of May. It's an arduous process, and uh, uh, but we are committed to uh, move out on this as quickly and uh, expeditiously as possible. But I don't want to. I like to give dates so we can be sure that we're doing that. Uh, our people really want to date longer than that but we're going to push them to get these checked out in May. Well, as this process unfolds, we'll continue to keep you informed. Well, next up on Fast Line Fast Track, we want to get a pulse of how farmers are doing uh, dur- during this whole COVID-19 thing. You know, uh, everybody's still got to get a crop in the ground and everybody's got to keep moving forward. We've just talked quite a bit about the uh, president's $19 billion that he earmarked for agriculture last week. And Wanted to bring in Nathan Engelhard, who is a fifth-generation farmer, uh, farms mostly organic corn, soybeans, and wheat in Michigan. And Nathan, welcome in to Fast Line Fast Track. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So uh, Nathan's wife, Amy, had actually reached out to us uh, to uh, uh, answer a, a call to action that we had had in our big ag magazine, uh, looking for some feedback from, from farmers for uh, uh, just in general how uh, their operations were, were looking these days, and that was prior to COVID-19. That, now we've got all, all sorts of different issues and challenges. And uh, Nathan, this is, uh, to say the least, an interesting time to be in farming. Yes, yeah. Last couple of years have been very interesting and probably even a, a little bit longer than that. But, you know, we're, uh, we're in agriculture. We're, we're eternal optimists. And uh, we have we don't really have another choice than to uh, get up next morning and do the best we can. Uh-huh. And you guys have have been where, where you're at since 1892. Is that correct? Yeah, since 1892 we've been here. And you farm in the Thumb area of Michigan, there on the bay. Tell us a bit about what that looks like. So where we're at, uh, like you said, we're in the Thumb of Michigan. So we're a peninsula inside of a peninsula. Um, we're we're very fortunate. We're about two miles. Uh, from the Saginaw Bay, where our farm lies. And so we have a, a very unique uh, base right in right in here that most of the world wouldn't see. You know, we have uh, the water, obviously, we're a peninsula, and then uh, we get a, a double dose of that. So we stay a little bit colder in the spring, but then we do stay a little bit warmer into the fall as well. And uh, weather weather patterns and that sort of thing are, are interesting for us at times. You know, we'll pick up a rain 
through the summer here and there. Uh, most of the time uh, when we need it, sometimes a little later than we'd like, but that's how it goes sometimes. So you are organic farmers. Tell me a bit about what that market has looked like over the past couple of years, and what are some of the things that you have done to market yourself to remain competitive? So because we're organic, our marketing is a little bit different than most. You know, we don't, uh, we're not traded on the Chicago Board of Trade, so we don't have uh, hour by hour fluctuations that uh, a normal farm would have. Uh, we do uh, most of our own marketing, so we have to call people and, uh, you know, get a feel for the market. We're supply and demand the market, so we haul a lot of our pro- products. Uh, anywhere from 150 miles up to about 300 miles away. So that, that kind of creates its own challenges as well. Um, the markets organically have been fairly consistent over the last few years. We did see a drop uh, just like normal or conventional agriculture uh, over the last few years. But, you know, we've been able to stay competitive in our markets. One of our biggest challenges is imports right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, grain coming in from other countries that's uh, really hurting our markets. And um, that's something we work with our legislators quite a bit on. Uh, one of the ways that we, we do stay competitive is, uh, like I said, we haul out of our grain pretty far away. Uh, we were able to start a trucking company that helps us move our grain in a timely manner at a competitive rate so that you know we can get we can get to some of those further out markets that uh, maybe locally aren't as uh, aren't as obtainable as what what some guys would like so uh, with, with all this covid-19 and you know just a, a change in in buying habits a change in people having to stay home and eat where do you see opportunities within that you know i uh, I, I think it's really interesting right now it's not something we're involved in but, uh, you know, uh, as we're seeing processing, meat processing plants close down and uh, what that really has to do, you know, it seems like a lot of people are kind of going back to that buying a quarter or a half of beef from the neighbor that has it. And, you know, it's, it's interesting for us to see uh, there's, there's times organically where we're pulling away and we're, we're trying to go direct to the consumer or direct to the, the manufacturer of those products. And, you know, uh, I kind of see that happening now through the COVID stuff that people are maybe going to try and cut out a couple steps in that. And, you know, uh, we, we all want safe and, safe and healthy food. Um, so, you know, maybe that relationship with the farmer would put some trust back in uh, that maybe has been lost over the last few years. So uh, we heard a lot uh, over the past few days about the next round of aid being given by the federal government. Uh, They had three tranches of payments through the MFP program uh, over the past year. So has that made a difference at all to to your farming operation or is there more that the government needs to be doing or is it something that... uh, you, you even allow yourself as a uh, as a farmer to to worry about. Um, uh, last year we had some acres that uh, went into prevent plant because it was just it was too wet. We we got stuck with equipment out there in the spring and it, it made it pretty difficult. Um, because we're organic, we see kind of a lag in our markets. Uh, we're typically a year to a year and a half behind uh, on our markets, so. 
you know, we haven't really seen the drop uh, maybe from the trade war or that sort of thing at this point yet. But um, if that does in fact come our way, then what do we do? Um, I, I haven't actually looked into the stimulus package, the, the $19 billion that just was announced here. I haven't looked into that to see what that could potentially mean for us at this point. Um, we just been, been busy trying to get seed ready and, uh, be ready to go to the field and do the best job that we can. Um, we, we were kind of lucky. We've got all of our seed here. We're ready to go. Um, you know, uh, our, our dealers have been very easy to work with and have kind of stepped up and done what they got to do to uh, main, maintain safety for their employees and for us. And it's it's changed a lot of things, but I don't know if it's changed it for the bad. Um, we'll we'll see as time goes along, you know, what, what good things we can take out of a, a less than uh, stellar situation. And, you know, hopefully that improves us. So you and your wife are, are raising what you hope will be the sixth generation to carry on the family farm. How do you keep building on what you've done to keep your operation vibrant and, and relevant to going into that next generation? You know, I, I, uh, I'm very lucky that I've been able to, I'm, I'm the fifth generation. And uh, my, my great-grandparents, my grandparents, my parents um, all did things that... Uh, set us up for the future you know it's it's taking care of the things that take care of you our ground is very important to us organically uh it's harder for us to just go out and uh spoon feed a crop uh with exactly what it needs at that time so we need to build those things up uh, in advance and make sure that our soil is as healthy as it can be uh before we even put a crop in there um, that's something that, you know, my family's done a very good job with, and we just continue to do that. And, um, the, the other really important asset we have on our farm is, uh, it's my wife and I in the ownership and, uh, we rely on, uh, five other people and their families to come to work every day and, to to give us, uh, their time. And, uh, that that resource is very important to us. We're we're a family farm, and our family extends to the people that uh, make our dream happen every day. Is there anything you guys are doing from a technology standpoint that helps you out? Um, I, I would say not really more than anybody else. You know, we have uh, GPS on our tractors. Um, we're we're constantly analyzing that data. We uh, have a full time office manager that can help us process data. Um, and make those things happen. But I wouldn't say we're doing anything uh, really special compared to someone else. So one thing neat that you and your wife are doing is you've created a farm Facebook page to kind of pull back the curtain on your operation and to kind of rally some of the other farmers around you. That's, you know, just kind of keeps our landlords and uh, other people in the community up on what we're doing. And one of those things that stemmed off of that is a no-shave harvest campaign. And our goal with that is to uh, bring attention to uh, farmers, their families, uh, uh, and sometimes that's stressful, and uh, helping people to understand that, you know, that with the downturn in agriculture, uh, that farmers do have an option to talk to someone if they need to. And, uh, you know, we as a farming community, we as a community as a whole, um, want to be there to uh 
to support each other. And uh, our goal is to get people posting on that page to be a part of that page year-round. We're harvesting crops uh, throughout the world every day, and we want to show that and be supportive to the people that uh, maybe are have, going through a little bit of a tough time right now. And where can folks find that? Uh, no Shave Harvest is the group, and it's on Facebook. So go check that out. And uh, Nathan, we really appreciate you taking the time to uh, come on the program here and share a bit about your family's farming operation and uh, wish you the best of luck here in the upcoming growing season. Sounds great. Thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate it. You know, a couple of weeks ago on the program, we had on Beth O'Connor, who is the executive director of the Virginia Rural Health Association, who highlighted a lack of insurance for many rural Americans is one of the big challenges facing rural Healthcare providers. We wanted to dig in a little bit deeper on that. So this week we brought in Florence Beacott, who's a rural sociologist and associate scientist with the National Farm Medicine Center, Marshfield Clinic Research Institute in Marshfield, Wisconsin. And Florence, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. Thank you. Thanks, Brent, for having me. So uh, the, this has got to be, well, not gotten to be, it's been for some time a huge problem in rural America, exacerbated and probably highlighted uh, by, by the recent pandemic here. But we've got a lot of folks who already were uninsured or underinsured, and now you've got folks who derive a lot of uh, their income from off-farm jobs and are losing jobs. It's it's becoming a real crisis. Yeah, I think um, it's interesting, Brent, that you say we've been knowing for a long time from uh, research-wise, there's research that goes back to 20 years um, that shows that farmers have been um, dealing with issues of high health insurance costs. Um, and in terms of how farmers access health insurance, we know, based on the work we've done with colleagues, we know that about 40% of farm families get their insurance coverage through our farm employment. So in the middle of COVID-19, what that means is if we have farm families um, without farm employment that are losing jobs, getting furloughed, um, they might be losing their coverage. So if folks find themselves in that position, what are some of the options that they have at their disposal? Yeah, Brent, so there are a couple of different ones. So if they were covered through their our farm employer, and if their employer had at least um, 50 employees, um, they should be eligible for COBRA. It gives you the option to continue staying on your employer's plan for up to up till 18 months. The trick is COBRA tends to be quite um, a more expensive option because you end up paying for the share that your employer was paying before. The other option, is, which is likely to be more affordable, is to go on the healthcare.gov, which is the insurance marketplace in the U.S., and there people can look based on where they live, what state they're in, what their zip is. They can look at the type of health insurance options that may be available. That is also where they can see if they qualify for a tax credit. And in some cases, even for coverage through a public plan. So there may be Medicaid or there might be chips for their children. Another thing that people can do is if they're not comfortable going on the marketplace is by calling a local insurance agent. And a local insurance agent can do a couple of things. They can either walk people through using Marketplace, buying a plan that way, since this is the only way to get a tax credit, or they can also sell plans that are, um, they can also sell plans um, of the Marketplace. Um, there is also another thing to consider too, Brent. It is for farmers who are seeing um, a dip in their farm income. So we're seeing that commodity prices are going down by quite a bit. And so that means that you have farmers who maybe have bought their plan on their health insurance marketplace um, and they put up an estimate for their 2020 income, which now they might be 
quite off, right? It might be quite lower than what they put in back in November, um, November, December. And so what folks should do is they should really go back to the health insurance marketplace and they should update what they think their farm income is going to be. Because that means that might mean that their uh, monthly premium might end up being lower. And last we knew there were 11 or 12 states that had opened an emergency period for uh, enrollment uh, off the normal enrollment period as a result of, of the pandemic. Do we know about how many of those are now? Uh, I think it is the same. Uh, it is still 12. And then we also need to think about, I think it's 37 states that currently use the federal insurance marketplace. Um, at this point, what the president has come out saying is by saying that he does not want to reopen the marketplace for special enrollment. I do know that they are just Monday or Tuesday, they are state attorneys who have written a letter to the government um, asking for um, open for a special enrollment period. And that included um, attorney generals out of Tennessee, I believe, Michigan. I think there were seven total from across the country. So as we look toward the future of this, this has highlighted uh, a, a large and ongoing problem, but what kind of things can be done, maybe that you've identified through your research to kind of shore up this problem? <laughs> Right, I think that you're asking the $1 million question, which is what can be done? I think, um, you know, it's hard to me, for me to say that as a researcher, right? I think that researchers have really identified uh, and have really shown the challenges that um, folks in the US face with accessing health insurance and healthcare. We also know that folks in rural areas have quite a few more challenges. Um, I think what it would require is um, policy, good policy, and I think that there are many, many ways to go about um, fixing um, or about in increasing access to health insurance for folks. And I think, um, you know, I think really politicians need to listen to the needs of their constituents and what constituents want. Um, and also they need to look at um, what we know about systems that work and systems that don't work. And uh, so one of the things I found fascinating, we were kind of talking about off the air uh, a couple of days ago, is that as you have gone into uh, homes and uh, talked to farmers and done research, this is a really sensitive subject. I, I think it is, Brent, because I think in some ways it touches on, you know, what we would consider those personal issues, right? Those things that we tend to keep in the home, um, it, and the reality is that we know that with health insurance, the cost of health insurance really impacts the way, really impacts the business. So what our research has shown is that um, three quarters of farmers said that they use health insurance as a risk management strategy. Because the idea is that if you have a big health care bill, um, it, it might end up um, impacting your farm business. We don't have data that I know of that shows um, you know, the number of farmers who, um, you know, lose their farm as a result of medical bill. But what we do know is that at the national level for the general population, uh, I think it is about 60% of personal bankruptcies that are associated at one point or another with a medical bill. And so that might be somebody who um, had cancer, that might be somebody who got hit in a car accident. Um, so those are these events of life that um, we can't predict. Um, and that can be expensive, even with health insurance coverage. And that's what our data showed is that 
the folks that were most concerned about their ability to pay for medical bills um, in the future, because we asked, uh, you know, to what extent do you worry about your ability to pay for medical bill um, in case of a major illness or injury without going into debt? We had 55% of the farmers and 55% of 1,200 farmers about that said that they were concerned. Um, and when we looked at, you know, what are the differences, it wasn't how old people were. It wasn't, you know, how big their farms are, what kind of commodities they produce, where they live in the country. Really what matters was the kind of health insurance that they have. And I think that comes back to what you were saying earlier, Brent, about the issue of underinsurance. So the Marshfield Clinic Research Institute here has a lot of great resources on its website uh, the deal with COVID-19 and also with insurance. If folks want to know more about that, but where can they go and what can they find there? Yeah, and I think that's... I think that's been the, the great thing about the current situation. It is a tricky situation, right? But there's been so many resources coming out around COVID-19 to help farmers. Um, so what I can recommend is, of course, they should, um, you know, uh, look on our website, National Farm Medicine Center. Um, we have information not only connected to health insurance, um, but really a lot of our work is about the safety of children and the safety of farmers on the farm working. So we have, for example, guidelines on what farmers can do to make sure that their um, kids are safe in particular as schools might be closed. This is planning season, this is busy. Um, they, are, they can also look up um, extension services, should have resources. Um, in terms of health insurance, um, they can look at their departments of health, department of insurance to see what kind of resources they're putting out there. Um, and again, in terms of health insurance, um, call a local agent. Um, just last week, I was talking to a local insurance agent here in Wisconsin who has a fair number of clients who are farmers. And he was saying he's been getting some calls from them um, and they've been uh, making some adjustments to their plans. And he was telling me that he was planning on calling other farmers who hadn't reached out to him yet to see, hey, how are you doing? How, you know, what's life like? You know, how are things on the farm? How are things with your farm job? Should we take a look at your insurance coverage and, and see if things have changed? Well, if folks want to know more about the work being done by the Marshfield Clinic Research Institute, they can go to marshfieldresearch.org backslash NFMC for the National Farm Medicine Center. And uh, if you're looking for a place to start for a state health insurance exchange, go to healthcare.gov. And Florence, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on Fast Line Fast Track. Yeah, thank you, Brent. Thanks for having me. Well, next up on Fast Line Fast Track, you know, with uh, COVID-19 being so big on everybody's mind right now, one of the things a lot of farming operations are focused on is keeping uh, sanitary. How how do you keep everything clean and, and sterilized, sanitized? And I wanted to bring in Tad Feaster, who's with Aqua Blast, their company out of Decatur, Indiana, that designs, builds, and sells high-pressure cleaning systems. And Tad, welcome into Fastline Fast Track. Yeah, how are you, Brent? Man, I'm doing good, and I understand that uh, you guys have, have kept pretty busy here lately. We have, we have. It's been kind of nice. Um, you know, the phones have slowed down a little bit in the pandemic, but um, we've been staying busy, you know, being able to supply the high-pressure cleaning systems, so it's an essential need. So, yeah, it's been pretty nice. So I know COVID-19 is on everybody's mind right now, but uh, the 
need for just a clean operation goes beyond that. And people were thinking about this well before the coronavirus. But uh, with this on everybody's mind, why is now a good time to invest in a high-pressure cleaning system? Yeah, yeah, especially now, you know, that people are being more aware um, of trying to keep uh, things clean and sanitary. Um, You know, anytime you can eliminate dirt, grime, or, you know, germs in general is always a good thing. You know, a lot of times people um, will put off washing for whatever reasons, um, you know, and, you know, it's important and it needs done. Not everybody wants to do it. But, you know, I think with uh, the COVID on people's mind, uh, this is a time where we need to get out there and make sure that uh, we're doing everything we can to just try to keep kill germs and just keep people as safe as possible. So everybody's talking about the coronavirus right now, but how does hot water cleaning help guard against uh, viruses and other things that could affect people or animals? Sure, sure. Yeah, you know, m- most germs, you know, are killed, you know, at least 140 degree uh, temperature. Now, with, with, you got to be careful with that, though, with bacteria. Um, it's kind of in a danger zone between 40 and 140 because they'll actually multiply. So, you know, you want to try to at least keep um, with bacteria to wash with at least 165 degree water or higher and you know the longer you can wash at that temperature um, you know just the more that you can kill obviously you're not going to kill everything but you know it just does a better job of, of keeping things sanitary and safe and that's one nice thing about ours you know our, our hot water machines you know they maintain that hot water you don't have to worry about you know starting out at 165 and then losing that as you go so um, you know just with really with anything with hot water even like you know, you want to wash the dishes or something like that. You know, obviously everybody washes their dishes with hot water. You know, you don't wash them with cold water just because it just cleans more efficiently and better. And, and yeah, you have a much likelier um, opportunity to kill those germs. So when you talk about uh, the, the systems that you guys have, what types do you carry and what are the distinctions between them? Sure. Yeah, we have, um, you know, hot and cold water washers both, but, you know, we're particularly focusing on the hot water ones here. And we do, you know, electric-driven ones, um, gas-driven or diesel-driven. Um, also, the heating sources can be either fuel oil, um, LP, natural gas, or total electric. So it kind of just depends on on the application and how how the customer set up to what they prefer or what's more beneficial for them. Um, but, we, but usually we can, um, you know, we can supply something to fit just about everybody. Mm-hmm. And this has been such an unusual time for, for so many businesses. What is Aquablast doing uh, to provide sales and service to customers in a safe manner during the pandemic? Yeah, um, you know, with, with our business, it's, it's, we're kind of a smaller business, so it's much easier on our end. We're, you know, we're about 11 employees, so with our shop and warehouse, we can pretty easily do our social distancing. But we've, we've kind of curbed the way we've, we've uh, dealt with the customers here. You know, we try to got one door that they're able to use now when we try to keep them maintained to the lobby area so when they come in we um we bring call out to the parts service department we bring the parts up to them so that we're not introducing anyone else into our facility you know just try to keep both customer and employees safe and and each time anyone comes in you know we're getting the sanitary you know sprays out and disinfectants and just spraying any any surfaces that door handles you know countertops anything that they may have touched but we're trying to do our best and on and the sales end of it we're still you know we're kind of pretty much confided to our offices but um, we can pretty much keep our safe social distancing so we're trying to do everything we can to keep you know our employees and our, and our customers safe 
So if folks want to know more about the systems being made by Aquablast, where can they go to, to read up on them? Sure. Uh, you can go to our website, which is www.aquablast.com. Um, you can also um, reach us by phone, uh, 260-728-4433. We're also on Facebook. Um, so there's a variety of ways to get a hold of us. The best way is um, if you go to our website, there's a request a quote form or information. You can always just um, reply there and tell us what you're looking for or give us a call. We'd be glad to, to chat with you, and you know we're here to, to try to find a solution for the problem. So make sure you go and check those guys out. Aquablast, again, in Decatur, Indiana, but uh, serving uh, the whole country. They'll take care of you if you just give them a call or check out that website, aquablast.com. And, Tad, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on Fast Line Fast Track. Yeah, thank you, Brent. Well, now it's time for the second part of our two-part conversation with honky-tonk Creole Western swing singer and fiddler Dennis Stromat. If you haven't heard the first part, I'd encourage you to go check it out on episode 50 of the podcast. We pick up this week's conversation with Dennis talking about the mentorship he received from another legendary fiddler and singer, Wade Ray. Stick around after the chat for more of Dennis's great music. So the cool thing about it, you might say, was the fact that um, I got to spend a lot of time with him, and, and that meant also... When I spent time with him, he used to have a lot of phone calls, and there'd be a lot of people calling. I mean, like the the, the coolest one. I mean, and we're talking. He had a lot of people. I mean, Rex Allen, you know, would call. Uh, Speedy West would call. Rufus Thibodeau. Um, but probably the coolest person that ever would call while I would be at Wade's house um, was Cindy Walker. Hmm. And um, I'll tell you a funny story about Cindy. She, I had kind of gotten to know her via the speakerphone <laughs> at Wade's house, you know, and, you know, because they would talk. I mean, Cindy had written so many great songs, you know, and, and songs that Wade did a lot of them. In fact, we were talking one day, we got to talking about the song, uh, uh, I was just walking out the door. I don't know if you're familiar with that tune or not, but mm-hmm. it, 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 what a great song. And well, she wrote that song, um, for Wade, but Wade was like on a movie set and got, they got to talking about this. I guess Wade was on a movie set, something that had to do with Gene Autry. And so he sings the song. Cindy had just sung the song for him taught him the song and was giving it to Wade to record. So he's at the, I guess the lunch hall. And I don't know, I think MGM studios or someplace like that. So he sits and he tells Gene, Hey, Cindy Cashdollar wrote this song, not cash. I'm sorry. Cindy Walker wrote this song for me and just walking out the door. So Wade goes and sings it for Gene and Gene loves the song. Gene has his representative call Cindy Walker to get the rights to record it. Well, Wade hadn't recorded it yet. Mm. She wrote it for Wade. Oh, man. (laughs) Did Cindy ever give Wade an earful? I guess she just tore into him. And and they they were laughing about it on, on the phone. 
and she, she told him at that point, said, if you ever do that again, I'll never write another song for you, <laughs> <laughs> you know, ever. And, and, uh, and it, well, anyway, they got off the phone, you know, Wade says, Hey, you don't mess around with Cindy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> when, when she says that she wants something a certain way, she wants it. So I, I was maybe back six months later, uh, they were talking about, they were, we were on the phone. I was there for a lesson, just spending the day. And, and they got talking about a new CD box set that had come out that she had written several new songs. And one of them was called a Tucum Carry Baby. Um, that was on a box set with uh, Tommy Alsop and Leon Roush doing a wow. Bob Wills tribute. Are you familiar with that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, well, it was going to be available to the Ernest Tubb record shop. And they're talking about this over, you know, I'm just kind of listening. And I was like, oh, wow, this, that sounds great. And I said, this sounds so cool, Wade. I said, I have got to get a copy of this box set. And And Cindy says, Dennis, you're not going to get a copy of that box set. You're not ordering one <laughs> from the Ernest Tubb record shop. And I, I said, well, that's okay. I said, I'll just call them up. I, you know, I don't have a whole lot of money. I'm in college. I said, I want to get a copy of that. I said, it sounds great. And she goes, Dennis, I said, you're not ordering a copy of it. And, and Wade's just sitting there smiling and giggling. And he's like, shh, shh, shh be quiet. <laughs> he's like putting his finger up and he's like, shut up, Dennis. She says, Dennis, she says, I'm going to have one sent to you from the Ernest Hub record shop. And I said, well, that's okay, Miss Cindy. I says, I can order it. Don't worry about it. You know, she's, she's, Dennis, what did I say? And I waited to say, be quiet, you know? And I was like, okay, fine. And she goes, Dennis, she says, don't you try to order it. And I said, okay, fine. All right. Three or four days later, I call up the Ernest Tubb record shop. This was like a 97, I guess. I call them up, and um, whenever the CD came out, I, I saw it come out, you know. And so I immediately call up the record shop. And so they're like, okay, we're going to take down your information, you know, for the rec you know, for the box set. And so they come back, and they're like, we'll get your credit card number. So I give them my name, and they're like, what did you say your name was? <laughs> I said Dennis Stromat. They're like, spell that. So I spell it, and they're like, hold on. They said, let's. We need to put you on hold. Hold on. So wait about thirty seconds. They come back on there and they're sir. Well, we're we're really sorry, um, but but we can't take your order <laughs> uh, for the box set. And I'm like, was there something wrong with my credit card? And they said, no, no. We have a box set here with a note on it from Cindy Walker that says tell you she really meant it <laughs> that you weren't buying a copy of the box set <laughs> and, and we just need to get your address and we're going to send you a copy <laughs> i love it <laughs> and i have the copy here still wow i still have it and kind of the coolest thing is um you know as years later I, you know, getting to know Buddy Spiker and, and taking lessons from him and recording with him and being his friend. Buddy was on that box set. <laughs> and uh, I took it down to him one time some years ago and I said, Hey, Buddy, I need your autograph on it. And he looked and he goes, Wow, where did you get this? <laughs> <laughs> he was like, This is cool. So, you know, I guess it's just one of those things. I guess, you know, fly on the wall. 
<laughs> you know, being in the right place, right time. Um, you know, it's just been cool to meet a lot of different people. And then the all these letters, it comes full circle, and uh, you, you're playing on the Midnight Jamboree presented by the Ernest Tubb Record Shop. Yeah, you know, I mean, you just you just never know what life's going to do. <laughs> you know, you really don't. So, so in, in addition to this, you're still also doing some teaching? Yeah, yeah. Um, I teach part-time at uh, a community college um, in uh, Mount Carmel, Illinois, Wabash Valley College. I teach uh, music and anthropology and government classes uh, there. I do a little bit of everything and um, do that part-time. You know, right now I'm doing it kind of full-time because so. <laughs> <laughs> of everything going on, but... Um, I do that and, you know, on, you know, alongside, you know, with my music and performing, um, you know, I do a lot of workshops and camps and um, it's interesting, you know, sometimes I go do a camp that they'll literally want me to, you know, maybe it's Cajun fiddling that I'll teach at one camp and in another camp I'll teach Missouri, Illinois and Indiana French Creole fiddling styles, but then I have some camp where they want to hear everything. They want to hear some Western swing and some old time country honky tonk style, you know, the more Tommy Jackson, you know, Buddy Spiker style. And, and, uh, they want a little bit of Cajun. They want a little bit of Creole. So, you know, I do that too. It's all fun. And we should mention to people, if they're interested, uh, you talk about some of the educational stuff you're doing. Uh, you you have, uh, in the past, teamed up with Illinois Public Media to do some really neat uh, videos that are floating around out there. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was really fun. Uh, alongside with the uh, Ken Burns series on country music, uh, they decided um, their U of I, uh, W-I-L-L, uh, I'm sorry, they decided they wanted to do kind of a companion documentary. Um, uh, with the PBS documentary, and so they did it on Illinois country music, and it features a lot of great. It's amazing how many people there are from Illinois, mm -hmm. you know, in country music, and I mean they're featuring, you know, Allison Krauss and you know Mo Pitney, you know, as well on there, and so um, so it's kind of you know it's kind of cool, you know, Susie Boggess is on it, uh, you know, as well. And there's a lot of neat connections, and they they kind of tap me twofold. Um, they kind of tapped me for it because they wanted to talk about Wade Ray, uh, because they knew of my connection with Wade and uh, him really being connected to Southern Illinois. I really kind of, even though he was born, you know, he was born in Griffin, Indiana, hmm. but his family is all from White County in Illinois, Carmine, mm -hmm. southeastern Illinois. And, and um, so they knew I was connected with that. And they also knew of my, my knowledge and background with the old you know, Illinois French Creole fiddling, essentially. And so they asked for my involvement. I think that's what they ended up more focusing on was was that before it was all said and done. And er, earlier, you brought up uh, the great Ray Price, and uh, you, your newest project now is a tribute to Ray Price and the Cherokee Cowboys. That's right. It's called uh, The Same Old Me, an homage to uh, Ray Price and the Cherokee Cowboys. Um, and uh, this is, it's kind of, kind of my third one in a way but in in some ways it's it kind of a standalone uh piece uh, itself and uh it's really kind of a wrap up from all the ones that i've done and uh, mainly because uh, i've been kind of on this uh trek you might say for the last 10 years uh you know working with buddy 
um, that he kind of got me really excited back in about 2012, 13. He's like, man, Dennis, he said, he said, you're so much into Ray Price stuff. He said, you really ought to do a, an album, you know, in tribute to Ray. And so we did one and he got Pete Wade in. I got become friends with Pete and Pig Robbins and got Willie Cantu and, uh, Tony Booth, I guested on a track back then. And that was actually before Ray passed away. Mm-hmm. And we did that, but I, I played some fiddle on it, but not a lot. I didn't do a whole lot of fiddle because I was still really working on it. You know, I mean, that whole style, trying to get there, you know, on my own. And I really wanted to feature Buddy, you know. And so then we did another project, and Buddy was like, ah, I think you, you need to do more, Dennis, you know. And Buddy played on it, but he had me doing more. And, and in this one, this project, um, Buddy just really kind of said, Dennis, you're ready. <laughs> he's like, you've been, you've been focusing on this for a decade. You know, he's like, we've spent so much time, you know, really just working in and outside, you know, that whole Tommy Jackson style. And he's like, you know, he said there's playing it, but then there's really playing it, mm-hmm. you know, and he was just like, I, he, he just, you know, because I could have said, hey, buddy, would you play more on it? And, and he, he would just, I would mention something to him about it, you know, about doing this album. And, and he was like, no, nope, I'm retired. <laughs> He's like, I'm retired. <laughs> you know, but I would go to him and we'd work on the tunes, you know, that and other stuff that we're working on. And I just, you know, kept asking him ideas, you know, on different parts and, and finally, uh, he says, uh, we're, I was getting ready to go in and do a couple songs and we were working over these parts and he says, Hey, you care if I go uh, in and play? Cause I wanted him to come in and just listen. You know, I was going to take him into the studio with me, but he goes, do you want me to go ahead and just, uh, maybe play, you know, some third and fifth parts. And I was like, well, I'd ask you buddy, but you said you didn't want to, you're retired. He goes, well, <laughs> Yeah, you know, maybe if we, you know, play for a little while, we'll see how I feel. And uh, we ended up playing to like three in the morning. Wow. And 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 he's like, okay, I'm ready. But we have to be at the studio at nine <laughs> that <Jeez>. morning. <laughs> but he's 81 years old. <laughs> he could put me in the ground, you know, but, but. But he listened to a lot of the project, you know, that we did. And um, he, I just asked him, I would say, well, what do you think, buddy? Is there anything you would do different? He's like, no. He's like, no. He's like, he, he ended up adding a couple parts to a couple songs. And the coolest one is uh, Make the World Go Away. Yeah. And uh, that one just came out fantastic and and uh, he added parts with me and we played it basically like a string section and uh, he he wrote it out and um you know scored the scored the song and um but for the most part you know this project what you hear vocally instrumentally it's me you know uh and buddy was just like nah he's like you're there he's like um He's like, he's like, so do you want a diploma? (laughs) 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 That's funny. But, uh, and I was like, no, how about just, uh, 
you, you, you did okay, Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, yeah, you did okay. So, but I, I love Buddy to death. He's such a great guy. You ever, and, uh, you ever sit back and think about just all these guys that you've had a chance to re- really study with and, and, and just take in all that tutelage and just what that's meant to you? Well, wow. You know, it. in some cases, it's just really it's it's kind of mind numbing <laughs> in yeah. some ways, you know, just, you know, the breadth of all the different people that I've been fortunate to meet, you know, I, I've, I've been fortunate to meet so many people and have been helped by so many people. They've been so giving of their time, you know, and I've just been this little like woodpecker that just won't quit <laughs> in some cases, you know, asking people and bugging people, you know, with questions and, and, um, but I'm fortunate. I really am, you know, and, and I, you know, been blessed really that they've been willing, um, to take time with me and not just shoo me away, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, and like I say, probably some of the people that are most amazing, you know, that are really most amazing or, you know, buddy, you know, buddy has been so amazing in a way so many years ago. You know, we lost weight in 98, you know, but he was such a big part of who I am today. And it's interesting because Wade even said, you know, he even told me kind of towards the end before he passed, he said, Dennis, he said, you need to continue on, you know, with your studies. And he said, and I really think you should go and find a fiddle player by the name of Buddy Spiker. Hmm. He said that to me back in 98. I would, you know, I met Buddy. 10 years ago, you know, and I mean, it took that many years, mm-hmm. you know, for it to eventually come around, but it's just been weird. You know, things like that have happened in my life where they just kind of come around, you know, and, um, I'd say, I, you know, I've just been fortunate and, you know, and, and I always hope that people enjoy, you know, some of the music, you know, that I make, you know, I, I, I love talking about the stories, you know, that's a, one of the nice things about being a fly on the wall with a lot of these guys is you hear a lot of cool stuff. Some <laughs> things you shouldn't repeat, but you know, but <laughs> do tell. But, but most of it's okay. So what's uh, <laughs> so so what's uh, on your bucket list here? What what are some of the projects that you have on your radar that you would really love to get into? Well, you know, it's really a weird thing that you know kind of funny you could ask me one day and i would say my bucket's empty yeah but i still do want to do um i mean i'm going to do another project uh another french uh, creole fiddle project i'm going to do another one on french creole ballads um from our area here in missouri and illinois and indiana i'm going to do another one and and but while there's still time you know and i and i really you know, hope that I'll get the time. And I think right now, as long as we continue at the pace we're going for the next few months, I might have the time. I, I really, really want to do uh, a project with Buddy. Um, he and I have talked about it for a long time of just doing a fiddle project, you know, something that's not me not singing. You know, a lot of times most people know me as a singer who also plays the fiddle. Um, you know, really not the other way around. In some cases, the French communities, I'm a fiddle player who also sings. Mm-hmm. 
Hmm. Uh, so it just depends on your point of view, but you know, I really want to do a project with buddy. Um, that's just the two of us, you know, playing and maybe it's just two fiddles and a guitar, you know, um, but buddy is so inspiring, you know, fiddle wise. And he's just got this whole other style, whole other sound that, that kind of delves into the whole, uh, Dale Potter sound that is just, um, out of this world. And, you know, I kind of hope to get there, something I'd like to do, you know, and uh, so th- those are kind of a couple of the things. So if folks are listening here and they want to find more of your music, want to learn more about you, where can they go? They can go to, well, a couple different ways. I mean, if you're interested in the French music, you can go to creolefiddle.com. That's C-R-E-O-L-E-F-I-D-D-L-E, Fiddle. Or if you're interested in more of the honky-tonk Western swing music, uh, that is honky-tonk-fiddle.com. So it's either creolefiddle.com or honky-tonk-fiddle.com. I have to to separate those. (laughs) 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 Because they are completely different types of music. I mean, it's very, very different. Uh, So I do that. all, All great stuff. And, man, we really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us here and uh, when uh, when we get things back uh, up and running again and they get you back on the uh, uh, on the midnight jamboree we'll make sure we let all the folks know about that so they can tune into that and uh, otherwise go check out those websites and and stay current on uh, what's going with Dennis but De- Dennis thank you so much for joining us hey absolutely thank you for having me on today this has been great i've really enjoyed really enjoyed talking to you And now for some of that great Dennis Stromat music. First up, Dennis puts his spin on the classic Heart Over Mind, written by the great Mel Tillis, and once recorded by Ray Price, whom Dennis pays tribute to on his latest album. Joining Dennis on this live performance are Pete Wade, Buddy Spiker, Mike Sweeney, and Willie Cantu, who was one of Buck Owens' original buckaroos. Take a listen.
Dennis Stromat and Company with Heart Over Mind. And now we want to share with you another track from Dennis's latest project, Same Old Me, an homage to Ray Price and the Cherokee Cowboys. This is an instrumental version of the song A Maiden's Prayer. It features Dennis and Buddy Spiker playing twin fiddles, Pete Wade on guitar, and Mike Sweeney on steel guitar.
And those were the sounds of Dennis Stromat. Again, be sure to check him out at honkytonkfiddle.com or creolefiddle.com. As always, we want to thank our friends at the Ernest Tubb Record Shop, 417 Broadway, in the heart of downtown Nashville, Tennessee, for making that performance possible. We hope when the shop opens, you'll go and support them. They have a great selection of traditional country music on CD and vinyl and a huge selection of really cool merchandise. You can check them out at etrecordshop.com. And while you're searching the internet in your downtime, head on over to fastline.com. Check out the equipment locator with the price comparison tool featuring the Iron Average powered by Iron Solutions. And while you're on the website, don't forget to sign up to receive the print catalog for your state or region. Even through this pandemic, the Fastline catalog is still being delivered to your mailbox. And if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the Fastline Fast Track podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or iHeartRadio. Also, be sure to follow Fastline Fast Track on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube, and add our Spotify playlist to your library for music from past, current, and upcoming guests of the show. Well, next week, we'll keep you up to date on the latest information on how COVID-19 is affecting the agriculture industry, and we'll have the music of Alex Schofield. Until then, it's Brent Adams saying y'all come back. And bring along a friend. You've been listening to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group. To learn more about Fast Line's customer focused marketing solutions, visit FastLineMediaGroup.com and check out our brand websites FastLine.com, BigAg.com, and PinkTractor.com. If you have topic suggestions for future podcasts, drop us a line at Brent.Adams at FastLine.com. 